Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel Podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. Thank you to our worship team for leading us this morning. A good morning to each of you here at Lincoln Road, whether you're here in person or you're online. It's so good to be with you. And uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Reg Lewicki, and I'm lead pastor here at the church. And one of the things that I appreciate about our Sunday morning gathering is that no matter what your week has looked like, whether you've had a good week or you've had a rough week, is that Sunday morning gathering can be this kind of consistent thing that comes every week that we can come to and be reminded that we are loved and that we belong. So whatever your week has looked like, we pray that you know that, that you belong here and that you are loved by us. And we're so grateful to be on the journey of faith alongside of you. Um, one point of clarification as it relates to the choir. Uh, I, I think I, was, I tuned in and out, so this might, I might be repeating something, but on the off chance that I'm not. Uh, if you are interested in being in the choir, you are already interested in being in the choir or you have questions about it, following the service, they're just going to meet right up here at the front uh, in front of the stage. And so Andrew, who's right at the back in the sound booth, um, he'll be there and he'll, he'll be able to direct you from there. Good? Good. Okay. Here's where I want us to start this morning. I want you to think about all the places where you've lived before. Now, for some of us, maybe we've only ever lived in a couple of neighborhoods, and others of us, maybe we've moved cities, and some of us have probably lived in various parts of the world. But I want you to think about the different places where you've lived, and I want you to think about if some neighbor comes to mind. I want you to think about your neighbors, and is there a neighbor that comes to mind where you're just like, man, that was a really good neighbor. I really liked that family or that person. It, may, I mean, it could be for all kinds of reasons. Like maybe they gave out the full-size chocolate bars at Halloween and that's all it takes for you. You're like, as a kid, you're like, yeah, you're my favorite neighbor forever now. Uh, maybe it's an older couple that watched you after school. Maybe uh, in your retirement years, you've had a young person who's come alongside and helped you know, shovel or mow or something like that. Maybe a family friends who live a block away or down the street. Anybody have a neighbor that comes to mind that you're just like, yeah, great neighbor, great neighbor. Not as many as I thought. I don't want to live in your neighborhoods. <laughs> okay, so let's flip it around. Have you ever had a neighbor where there was like tension and it was sort of like they were very difficult and you just had to kind of like, oh my goodness, I had to amp yourself up whenever you saw them. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to give any details, particularly if you live on my street, because it's probably me. Um, the kind of neighbors that we have, they impact our lives, right? they influence us. They, they have an impact on it. And I was thinking about my own life, and I've lived in a number of places, and I've actually been very, very lucky. Like, even going back to when I was a small child in Winnipeg, I can remember having good neighbors. And I've had good neighbors my whole life. I can't think it. There was one older guy across the street in my high school years that he was kind of uh, rough on us because we'd hop over his fence and get our balls out of his backyard. And that probably had more to do with the fact that we were trampling his gardens. And so I was probably the bad neighbor in that particular situation. But other than that, like every neighbor we've had has been really positive. And if you talk to my wife, Carolyn, or I about our move to Waterloo in the last five years, uh, it does not take us very long before we start telling you how grateful we are for the neighborhood that we live in. That we have these really good people who are kind and warm and generous, who are interested in one another, who are willing to lend a helping hand. It's, it's so fortunate. It's a joy to be able to raise our family in such an environment. This morning, I want you to think about the people who live on either side of you. Maybe it's in a dorm room. 
Maybe it's an apartment building. Maybe it's a, a condo complex. Maybe it's a house. But I want you to think about the people who live on either side of you. I want you to think about the people who live across the hall or across the street. I want you to think of the people who live directly behind you, if anyone does. And I don't want you to ask yourself, are they a good neighbor? I want you to ask yourself, if they were asked about me, would they consider me to be a good neighbor? Are you a good neighbor? And does it even matter? This morning, we're concluding our teaching series that we've called Inside Out. And really, at least in the la- today and the last two weeks before this, we've been in Romans chapter 12, right? And that's where we're going to be again today. So if you have a Bible, a physical Bible, you can flip to Romans 12. If you're on a device, you can scroll there. Uh, but before we got into Romans, way back in the first week of the fall, Uh, you might remember we were in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, and we looked at the story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. And I don't know how much you remember about that, but there were a couple of key points from that story that we wanted to bring forward. And the first one was this, was the reminder that Jesus cares about the whole person. That Jesus is concerned about our spiritual well-being, absolutely. But he also cares deeply about our physical and emotional and our mental well-being. And I would actually push that out even further to say that God cares about his entire creation, that God has a desire to see uh, the world around us and all the people who live there living in such a way that there is widespread flourishing. God's desire is for shalom. The second thing that we pulled out of that story of Jesus healing the paralytic was the reminder that when Jesus does a work, whether it's in your life or my life or in someone else's life, Jesus often begins by doing a work on the inside in the unseen places, but his intention is never to allow it to stop there because Jesus cares about the whole person. Jesus desires that what he begins on the inside would expand outward in very visible ways that would begin to bear fruit, kingdom fruit, and that it wouldn't just be for our sake, but it would be for the sake of others. And that was all what kind of set the stage for us as we started looking at this kind of rich chapter in Romans, Romans chapter 12. And we were reminded that Paul, uh, you know, outlines the beauty, the majestic beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, reminding us that uh, humans in their folly and their sinfulness, they've rejected God. They've gone their own way. They've decided we can decide what is right and wrong. We can decide how to live the good life. And humans have allowed their brokenness to fracture and divide our world. We look around, we see injustice, we see pain, we see selfishness, and ultimately we see death. But God, in the midst of that hopelessness, he acts on our behalf. He sends Jesus into our midst. God in the flesh who comes and lives among us and who self-sacrificial death on a cross not only opens the door that our sins might be forgiven, but actually overcomes the power of death and darkness in our world. And we're reminded that Jesus is creating for himself a new kind of humanity, a new community of people that are gathered from all tribes and all nations and all classes, no limits, all to embrace the way of God and to invite others to join as well. And the reality of this good news, what we would call the gospel, is that it affects every part of us. It's not just something that we add to our life kind of like an accessory, but we're invited to give our whole selves over to Jesus, to the one who gave his whole self for us, that we would allow his spirit and his truth to transform our minds, that we would align ourselves with God's truth and with his way instead of being content to just sort of float along the current of culture to conform to the patterns of a broken world. 
But then Paul pushes us outward, and Aaron brought us into this last week as we talked a little bit about the fact that we see that we're called to be a part of the community of Jesus' people. And I love this one thing that Aaron said. Aaron says that, that you need the community, but the community actually also needs you. We belong to each other. We're a body, and we each have a part to play. And so we're invited to find our place and actively serve and bless and to grow and to support and encourage one another as we serve the kingdom of God together. But this week in our text, the text is going to push us even further out than that. Lest we think that faith is just about what I believe on the inside or, or just sort of I get to hang out with people who kind of believe the same stuff as me and are therefore kind of easy to get along with. For Paul, faith in Jesus is not a private affair, not on an individual level and not for us as we gather as a corporate church community. It's something that gets lived out in the wider world around us, in places where there are, this is like spoiler alert, there are people out there who don't believe what you believe. There are people out there who have a, a different worldview or a different a framework for belief about what it means to be human and what it means to live. And how we live in that place, it's huge. It matters. In the church world, we call this sometimes, we call this idea outreach. Maybe you've heard that word. Or sometimes we like to use the word evangelism, simply this idea that we're called to point others towards Jesus to invite them to discover the hope that we have found in Jesus, that's made a difference in our lives, and, and, and would you consider allowing Jesus to do the same for you? And I want to stretch our thinking this morning to think that our ability to do outreach or our ability to share our faith has actually everything to do with the kind of neighbors that we are. That our ability to influence and impact others for Jesus is deeply connected to the kind of neighbor that I am to them as an individual, but also for us as a community of faith, as we are this church, Lincoln Road Chapel, that resides here in Lincoln Heights. You and I are surrounded, as I said, by people who do not share our faith, people who do not subscribe to our worldview as followers of Jesus. And a bunch of people out there, they, you know, they don't have strong feelings one way or another. Maybe they don't know very much about Christianity. It's never been a part of their lives. And so they just sort of happy to coexist. There's a segment of people who are unsure. They know a little bit, and they don't really know if it's for them. It's fine for you, but I'm not really sure if it's for me. And then there's probably a segment of people who lean towards a bit more of a hostile sort of posture towards Christianity, and for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they had a rough experience with church or with Christians. Maybe it's because they believe something else, and the gospel or the message of Jesus creates friction before. We've got to have grace to understand why people might feel hostile. And so how are you and I to live in a place where we are surrounded by others who maybe do not share our faith, who do not share our worldview, do not share our idea of what it means to be in community and to grow as humans? Well, it begins, I think, by us being a good neighbor. So we're going to jump into our text, and I'm going to use that as the framework for us to unpack what Paul writes here in Romans 12, uh, beginning at verse 14. This is what Paul writes. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Remember that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. This is the center of the Roman Empire. This is a city above all cities, which is totally like drunk the Kool-Aid on what the empire is about. They've totally embraced the way of Caesar and his ideologies. And most of regular life in Rome actually stood in opposition of the call of Jesus and the life of individual believers. They weren't to go and worship Caesar as a god. They weren't to uh, participate in the idolatrous festivals. Christians stood out because they had a different view on power. Christians uh, didn't fit in because they chose peace over the sword, because they had a different sexual ethic, or they opened up their table to more people, or they cared for the poor, even the poor that were not connected to them. And so Christians stood out. And not always in a way that was culturally acceptable. Sometimes it was like, those Christians, they're different, and I kind of like it. And then there were other times they were like, I'm not really sure about this group. I don't really trust them. They're, they're different than we are. And we're not totally sure what level of persecution was going on at the time that Paul writes this letter. Paul writes this letter. It's near the beginning of the reign of Nero, we think. And certainly by the end of Nero's reign, he certainly has uh, gotten his back up against Christians. He's turned on them in a big way. He's been sanctioning violence against them. And to what degree this is already happening as Paul writes this letter, uh, or whether it's just a phrase that he uses to encapsulate being ostracized socially or turned out from the marketplace or rejected by your family, verbally abused, we're, we're not sure. What we are sure, I think we can say for certain, is that for Paul, he doesn't have blinders on. And you actually read the story of Paul, and he encounters all kinds of persecution, often from the Jews first, but then also from Gentiles. But Paul doesn't sugarcoat the idea that living as a follower of Jesus in the midst of empire is anything but difficult. He's like, it's going to be hard. There's going to be some level of persecution. And so the call is that wherever you find yourself, this is what he says, that wherever you find yourself in the wider world, be somebody who brings blessing into that world, not curse. And it actually doesn't matter what is being sent on you. If you're being persecuted, if you are being cursed, you're not to respond in kind. You are to be an agent of blessing that brings blessing to the world, not adding to the curse or the brokenness. In doing so, you are reflecting the goodness of God to everyone around you. And so how does Paul encourage his readers? And again, I want us to look at this through the framework or through the lens of being neighbors. But how are we to be a blessing in the world in which we live? There's four ways in the text that I think that you and I can do individually, but also communally as a church, I think that we can do together. The first thing is this. Paul says, you need to be present. You need to be present. Paul writes this, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. This is an invitation to be present and to be paying attention to what is happening around you. That our neighbors would not just simply be people who live in proximity to us and they kind of just exist there, but that they would actually be people who were relationally invested in, that we're paying attention to. We know a little bit about their story. 
And when we talk about neighbors, we can think about the places where we live, we can think about where we work. Maybe we're talking about the people who work down the hall, maybe we're at school, and the people whose locker is next to us or who uh, is in the class next to us. But here's the thing, whatever the circumstance, whatever the environment, people are going through stuff. People are experiencing, just like you and I are experiencing the ups and downs of what it means to be a human, what it means to live life, what it means to just get through the day. Parents are aging. Kids are graduating. Promotions are happening or they're being passed over. There are diagnoses. Grandkids are being born. Trips are being taken. Difficult decisions need to be made. And Paul says, we are to live in harmony with one another. Now, I am not a terribly musical person. I will not be down here at the front for the choir. But here's what I know about harmony. Harmony is the combining of two sounds that work together. They fit, right? The opposite of harmony is a dissonant chord, a dissonant note. It's that awkward, unpleasant sound that doesn't fit in a musical composition. And Paul is saying that we should be paying attention to what is happening around us, that we should be present in it in ways that fit, in ways that are appropriate, that we wouldn't just be living adjacent to one another, but that our lives and our stories would be intertwined, that they would intersect. And that always begins simply by being present, that we'd be invested in the lives of people around us enough that we have an idea of what they're going through. And when it's something great, somebody found work after maybe months of being unemployed, or a new addition joins the family, harmony means that we respond appropriately. We celebrate with them. We celebrate the good things that are going on in their lives. We join in on the joy. And then conversely, when things are hard, there's a scary diagnosis. There's relational breakdown. We don't ignore it. We don't act like it's not happening. Don't be a dissonant note in their journey. But slow down. Listen. Be present. Be an ear that hears. Be a heart that is open. Even if you are only just showing up and just being present, just do it. We live in a world that tends to be envious of others in their good fortune and uncomfortable around those in their difficulty. But the way of Jesus, the way of the Christian, is that we are invited to be present and to join in it appropriately, celebrating God's goodness in someone's life and journeying alongside them in the pain and the difficulty. So the question is, are you present and relationally invested in those around you. What would that look like for us as a church? What would it look like for us here in Lincoln Heights to be a community of people who celebrate with those who are celebrating and are prepared to mourn with those who mourn? Second thing that Paul invites us to is that we would be open. He writes these words. He says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. In a lot of ways, this is kind of connected with that first point of being present, but it pushes us to consider how open or how hospitable are we as people? 
In any community, whether you're talking about a workplace or a school or you're talking about a church family or talking about a neighborhood and where we live, there are some people who are easier to get along with than others. That's just human dynamics. People are drawn to people because they're at similar stages of life or they have the same background or whatever. And it can be easy for us to follow the pattern of our world. Then we begin to create classes of people. We begin to say, this person is worthy of my time or energy, or this person is in and this person is out. I want to sort of stay away from this group of people. But see, the reality of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, is that it actually does its best work in the margins in the places where people have been pushed to the outside, in places of lowliness or loneliness, because here it is, good news is only good news if it invades bad spaces. You have to be on the margins. You have to be in a place where you're hurting, where something's not going right for good news to be good news. And being a good neighbor that looks like or reflects Jesus means that we don't just stick to ourselves. We don't just engage with the people that meet our standards, but we're prepared to open up our hearts and our lives and our tables and our homes to everyone that Jesus puts in our path. It is the intentional choice to see another human being as an image bearer of the Almighty God and asking the question, how might I be being invited in this moment to be a blessing in their life? Loneliness pervades our world in so many different ways, whether it's socially, whether it's relationally, whether it's politically, economically, culturally. And again, it's easy for us to subscribe to the pattern of our world, right? And associate only with those who look like us, who act like us, who believe what we believe, who vote the way that we vote. People that we can get something from. But if we were to model the way of Jesus, it would mean that we'd be willing to enter into the mess and the lowliness and the loneliness of others' lives. People who are not like us. Why? Because they matter to God. And he loves and he cares deeply for them and they are worthy of love and respect. And so whose story is God inviting you to be a part of? Not because it's easy, not because it's convenient, but because it's important. Who knows how he might want to use you to bless others, and who knows how you might be blessed because you stepped into it in faith. Third way that Paul calls us to maybe be a good neighbor is by having integrity. Here's what he writes. He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And Paul reminds his readers that actions speak louder than words. That how they live is on display. That people are, particularly if people know that you're a follower of Jesus, they're paying attention. They want to know if what you say you believe actually gets lived out, if you actually live in alignment with it. And so is there consistency between who we claim to be as followers of Jesus and how we live it out? Would our neighbors see us as being honest, as being trustworthy, of having integrity, or is there a perception of us that we cut corners, that we take advantage of other people? Would they see our faith as something that is an announcement of good news or something that we brandish in order to harm others? Yesterday was uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, right? And so it was interesting because we kind of 
participated on Friday. Our kids, you know, wore orange shirts and had lots of conversations again about residential schools. And there's lots of stuff that, you know, we have to engage with as, as Canadians and, and part of our history and, and coming back and being reminded, you know, how we got to this point. But every year as this comes around, one of the things that I reflect on and I'm reminded of is that the church was complicit in this. And for me, it's sometimes like so mind-blowing. It's like, how can anyone understand the gospel of Jesus is for all people, but then act so differently? Say one thing, but act another. And I'm reminded about how easy it is for us as humans, because we're humans, because we're flawed, that we would, uh, you know, claim a belief in the good news of Jesus, but live in ways that actually harm others. And it's important for us to remember, to be reminded. I mean, sometimes it's uncomfortable for us, but it's important that we be reminded that in the places where we get lax, in the places where we don't take our faith seriously, where we don't live a faith that is consistent with what God says, it's not just damaging to our witness, which it is, but it has the potential to cause harm to the people that God has called us to love and to care for. And so I'm reminded that we have to ask ourselves, do our neighbors see us as people who have integrity? Do they see us as people who choose to do what is right, even when it's hard? People who engage honestly and respectfully with those around us. So we need to be present. We need to be open. We need to have integrity. And then Paul returns to where he began in verse 14, to a place of persecution, And up until now, this list that Paul has given us has been proactive. It's how we're supposed to be. But Paul knows that we live in a world of competing ideologies. And where the way of Jesus meets the way of the world, at various times there's going to be friction. They're going to kind of clash. And friction is bound to come. So the call is not just in how we act. The call is in how we react. And so we are called to be those who take the high road of grace. He writes this, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is inevitable that at some point in your life, someone is going to wrong you either because of your faith or simply just because we're all broken humans living in a messy world. And humans have a natural tendency, don't we, that we want to get back in the face of being wronged. We want some measure of revenge. Maybe we don't like the word revenge. Maybe we'll call it personal justice or whatever, but the point is the same. We want to get back at others. You know how the city sends um, the street sweepers in the fall and they collect all the leaves off the side of the road, right? It's like the greatest day of, of the fall, right? Well, I had one year where I had a neighbor who raked up all the leaves from in front of his house and he put them in front of my driveway. And then he parked his car directly in front of that pile of leaves so that his curb was nice and open so that the street sweeper could get all those leaves. But that meant that they couldn't get the pile of leaves that he piled up because it had to go around his car. I don't know if you can kind of picture this. I was looking out the window and I saw it happening in real time and it was, it was stealing part of my soul. Um, right, And so the street sweepers came down twice and they did not pick up the leaves in front of my curb, which I did not put there. 
And then after the street sweeper went by, he came out and he got in his car and he pulled it into his driveway, which had remained empty the whole time. I might need to take a moment here, right? All these leaves are left for me and all I could think about was revenge. Like, I'm gonna go get my, my leaf blower and I'm just gonna blow these leaves from whence they came, right? Like, that's justice. Like, these weren't my leaves. Why, why should I have to worry about them? I didn't. I wanted to, I didn't. Part of that is because I have a wife. And she, it is good to be with people who tell you, no, you need to take the high road. You need to be a, the right, I am not a good person. I am, I'm just, I'm confessing it. I would, I, but I kept my mouth shut. And I raked and I bagged those leaves and, and I didn't do it out of a good place. Like I'm not trying to be a saint here. I grumbled the whole time. I didn't take revenge though. But you know what actually happened was later that winter, as the snow would begin to fall, I kept getting convicted every time I went out to that stupid curb. Because you know when the snowplow comes? Like the more snow that's in front of my house, the more it will push in front of somebody else's house and it's a bigger pile. And I found out like every time there was a big snow, I would shovel all the way down the curb and even in front of his house so that there'd be less snow in front of his driveway. Um, I think God just, you gotta start somewhere, right? Like this is such a small petty thing, but I'm afraid it's gonna happen again in like three weeks so I'm preparing myself, right? But, but that's the thing, right? Like whether he notices or doesn't notice, that's not the point. It was part of a process of me being able to let go of a slight. To, to try to listen and say, okay, what, what would the high road look like here? What would be the right way to act as a neighbor? It's a small thing, but we have to start somewhere because, guys, I'm still human, right? I still wrestle with my own human nature even when I'm wronged. But see, seeking revenge, whatever it looks like, big things or small things, is conforming to the pattern of the world. And there is a measure in which when you seek revenge, what you are saying is, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you to be paying attention in the midst of this. And, and if you think about the Roman world where Paul was writing, I don't know what kinds of things he was addressing, but I have a, a pretty strong sense that it was more serious than curbside leaf pickup. It was a bigger thing. Maybe a Christian business gets boycotted or their stall in the marketplace gets vandalized. And human nature says, I want to get back, but the invitation of Jesus is to trust God and to take the high road, to go so far as to love your enemy in return. You see them that they're hungry, feed them. You see that they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And here Paul quotes Proverbs 25, 21, 22. He says that in doing good, you will heap burning coals on his head. And we're like, what does that mean, right? It's such a bizarre statement. And if you go and read commentaries for Proverbs, there's not a clear answer. If you read commentaries here in Romans, it's not entirely clear. Uh, and we might think, yes, I'll do good to the person, right? I will do good to the person. And man, that is going to get them. That is just going to eat away at them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill them with kindness. And then I'm going to get what I wanted, right? But that doesn't seem entirely consistent with what the text is saying. There are commentators, N.T. Wright among them, that says he wonders if responding with care and kindness is a way of opening the wrongdoer's eyes, that at the very least that they, that they um, feel remorse, and maybe at most that they actually repent. And there might be something to that. That can ring true. But there's something interesting that throughout the Old Testament, the presence of God is often portrayed through fire or through coals. 
And that, I mean, I might be reaching here. So just like write this down in pencil. Don't write this down in pen. Like I might be reaching here. But, but could it be potentially, even though it might not be on Paul's mind, but it seems somewhat poetic to me that if we were to respond to persecution with grace and love and kindness, if we were to take the high road, that in some ways what we're doing is we are reflecting and mimicking that in some way when I take the high road, maybe in some small part, I am reflecting and acting as the presence of Jesus in their midst. The very one who loved his betrayer, the one who loved his accusers, the one who asked God to forgive people while they were crucifying him. Could it be? Could it be that that is what it means to pour hot coals, is to be the presence of of God in someone's midst. When wrong happens to us, we can take the high road. We can trust that God is paying attention to injustice, that he's going to bring justice, he's going to bring wholeness. He said that he would. He can be trusted with what he says. But being conduits of love and grace is to extend to our persecutors exactly what Jesus extended to me when I stood in defiance of him. It is to be who we claim to be, an expression of God's love for others, even when it's hard and even when it costs us, because that's exactly who Jesus was for us. The work that Jesus has begun in our lives, whether that's on an individual level or as a collective community of faith, it's meant to be changing us, right? It's meant to be forming us to become a different kind of people, to be more like him. He's binding us together in community to grow and to support each other, and then to participate in this kingdom work wherever we find ourselves, whether it's as a church community or where we live or where we work or where we go to school, that we'd be people who reflect his love and his grace, his goodness to all people everywhere. It's an announcement that he is king. And it's an invitation for others to discover that his way is available to them. Here at LRC, we might say it this way, that we want to be people who are rooted in the truth of God's love that we want to be growing up together to be like Jesus. We want to be bearing fruit through the Spirit by serving our neighborhood, city, and the world. God's Spirit wants to be at work in you, drawing you into his family of faith to grow and to be more like Jesus, but he wants to do it for the sake of others. There's this great um, quote by N.T. Wright that sums up our passage. I'll put it up on the screen so you can read it along with me, but it, it kind of captures everything that we've said today. Christians are to be known as good neighbors, prepared to join in the fun when someone on the street has good news, to be there to support and weep alongside those who face tragedy. It is within that kind of setting where Christians are known, liked, and respected that people will be prepared to listen to them, talking about the Lord that they serve, the one who seemed to let evil conquer him when he died on the cross, but who in fact overcame it with the power of his own love and life. It begins by being good neighbors, and this actually works. It actually works. So I have two sets of friends. I have two friends that are brothers and another friend, and they grew up next door neighbors. And one I knew because we went to church together, and one I knew because I went to church with the other one. These two brothers ended up coming to youth group, coming to camp, and they gave their lives to Jesus. But their dad took much longer before he came to faith in Christ. 
But part of the reason that he opened himself up to the gospel, to the message of Jesus, was because of how my other friend's dad neighbored him, that he was present in his life, that he was open in his life, that he lived his life with integrity, that he took the high road. It was over the course of this relationship, over years of being a good neighbor, of, of raising their boys together, that my friend's dad, through prayer and through uh, being exposed to true Christian community, came to faith in Jesus. That's what can happen if we're intentional about the kind of neighbor that we are. And so this week, I want to encourage you to consider who you are privileged to be a neighbor to. Look for ways to be present. Look for ways to invest relationally in their lives. Open your door. Open your table, your ears, and your heart to all people. Make the effort to do what is right, even when it's hard because people are watching. And know that in the face of wrong, that you might be the presence of Jesus in a very tangible way for the sake of somebody else. And so may we endeavor not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded that it was when we were set against you that you sent Jesus, that you drew near to us in love and grace and compassion, and you invited us to come and to find hope and life in you. And so I pray for us as individuals, wherever we live and work and play, I pray for us as a community of faith here in Lincoln Heights that we would be good neighbors, that we'd be neighbors who are present and who are open and who have integrity and who take the high road of grace, all so that you might be reflected, that the truth of your gospel be made known to all people, and many would come to find hope and life in you. So continue to form us that we become more like Jesus. Help us to grow together in that and help us to bear fruit through your spirit for the sake of others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.